Thank you, Councilman David. It was a great pleasure to see you both morning and evening today, and may God bless you in your labors. And it is a great honor to be back with the uh, George Whitfield Society. Uh, normally, people only invite me once. If I get invited back second, I'm wondering what, what in the world's going on. To get three or four times, it means uh, uh, for some reason they're trying to be nice to me. I don't know why, but Mike and uh, Jay and others, what a privilege to uh, continue to build a friendship that's been very precious. Uh, as I talk tonight, I want to address the question of family, church, and state in confusion. Uh, we think about the world that we're in, and we realize that uh, we are facing many upheavals. It's a time of extraordinary partisan wrangling. And we realize that the family, church, and state are part of the culture that we live in. Uh, for example, most of us have believed that family is central to human life. Someone by the name of Michael J. Fox, not known as a great theologian, is someone I'd like to quote. He said, family is not an important thing, it is everything. That captures the heart of what was the great American sense. Someone you know well, C.S. Lewis, speaking about the church, expressed how the church was to be an integral part of the Christian's life. He put it this way. We are forbidden to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Christianity is already institutional in the earliest of its documents. The church is the bride of Christ. We are members of one another. The family is everything. We are forbidden to neglect the church. And the government, yes, it is necessary. But in the American spirit, it is dangerous. Thomas Paine, that firebrand of the early revolution in America, said government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. One of our great uh, thinkers by the name of James Madison, called the architect of the Constitution, in his Federalist Papers, he wrote those with other founders, and number 51 is one of the classic statements, and in, in this particular one, he speaks in this following way about government. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, controls on government would not be necessary. In a government administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and the next place, oblige it to control itself. So you think about these statements. There's this general sense the family is critical. It's everything. That the church is unable to be neglected by those that are in the Christian heritage. The government is important, but it's dangerous. I think Will Rogers put it very interestingly. I think I flew into the Will Rogers Airport. Isn't that right? So you, you know that name, right? Well, Will Rogers put it this way. The only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. And so that's good down-home Oklahoma humor, isn't it? We all get it instantly. Well, the point is, is that there is a danger with government. And so we might be willing to blame the problem of the confusion of family, church, and state all in the government. But, you know, that's too simple. 
Each of these great distinct elements of our Western civilization have their own problems. Let me just speak very quickly of some examples. When we speak about the family, we can think about the explosion of the breakdown of the family, of fatherless families, illegitimate children, the redefinition of the family, and now a redefinition of even gender. When it comes to the church, churches are experiencing scandal, pedophilia, declining attendance, abandonment by the millennials, denial of the Bible's teaching for secular beliefs and practices by churches that prior years held to deep commitments to the Bible. In regard to the state, politics has entered everything, politicizing life, church and families, with the state seeking ever more control seemingly over all aspects of life even as it reverberates with sexual harassment claims, escalating debt, claims and counterclaims about taxes, terrorist threats, besieged law enforcement and military personnel, escalating entitlements, immigrants and refugees as renewed conflict between races. Some have even wondered, are we facing a potential of a new civil war? What's happened? What's going on? Why are we in this condition? Several years ago, I remember reading a work by Francis Schaeffer, and in his book called The Christian Manifesto, he said this, the basic problem of the Christians in this country is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. They have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and in his day, finally, abortion. They failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in worldview. This shift has been away from a worldview that was at least vaguely Christian in people's memory towards something completely different. What Schaefer was trying to get us to realize is that there has been a sea shift in the way that people look at the world which means the way we think about reality impacts these great institutions of family, church, and state. When R.C. Sproul, who just passed away, perhaps you recognize him as one of the great reformed apologists of this uh, last generation, he says this in, in an article that I read some time ago. About 30 years ago, I shared a taxi cab in St. Louis with Francis Schaeffer. I had known Dr. Schaefer for many years, and he had been instrumental in helping us begin our ministry in Ligonier, Pennsylvania in 1971. Since our time together in St. Louis was during the twilight of Schaefer's career, I posed this question to him. Dr. Schaefer, what is your biggest concern for the future of the church in America? What a great question. Sproul and Schaefer, wouldn't you have liked to have been in that conversation? Without hesitation, Dr. Schaefer turned to me and spoke one word, statism. Schaefer's biggest concern at that point in his life was that the citizens of the United States were beginning to invest their country with supreme authority, such that the free nation of America would become one that would be denominated by a philosophy of the supremacy of the state. Lots of ideas swirling around here. 
What I'd like us to do is to say, if we're willing to say, yeah, there seems to be confusion in each of these key parts of how we look at the world, of family, church, and state, they'll have problems. But there's an escalating interest in the rise of the state and its control. How do we address it? How do we think about it? What do we do? Is there a solution? Is there a way forward? As we begin to think about this problem, it's good to step back for a moment and introduce just a few other concepts that I hope will help us as we discuss these things. First of all, let's take a moment and talk about the word culture. Obviously, family is part of culture. The church is part of culture. Government or the state is part of culture. But what is this thing called culture? We can speak of Christian culture. We can speak of Muslim culture. We can speak of a counterculture or a communist culture. In other words, a culture is a concept we can think about, and it takes different forms. Well, if we take a moment and we think about this word culture, it's helpful to step into its etymology. Where do we get this word? The word culture actually is very close to the word cult. In English, we know what a cult is. It's a movement that has a religious control that is aberrant from Scripture that tries to control its members. But the word cult in its original form, coming more from the German tradition, spelled K-U-L-T, meant worship. There are various cults. There's the cult of the Canaanites, the way they worship. There was the cult of the ancient Israelites, the cult of the early Christians. And it's from that word meaning worship that we get the word culture. Someone has put it this way. Culture is your inward religion turned outward. It is what you cherish and value and worship on the inside that flows out and creates the environment in which you live. And so every culture has certain ideals and values that it holds. We might say that that is its worldview. Its worldview describes what is most important, what is transcendent, what is most precious, what is the overarching principle over everything. And I would suggest that in our Western culture, the things that have made the West from the Reformation time on into this period, even now we're in America, was an understanding that God existed, that he'd revealed himself in his word, that he'd created this world. This world has been marred by sin, but God has not abandoned it. He has invested his grace in it, bringing redemption so that we have an ultimate hope. That simple summary of a Christian view is the context in which these three great expressions of culture find their manifestation. The family in culture is going to be defined by that Christian worldview. The family is not an evolutionary construct. It is something created by God. The church is not 
one expression of multiple religious possibilities, but it is an institution that was established by the incarnate Christ, fully God and fully man, establishing a community of worship. And the state is something that God has actually built into the very fabric of humanity going back to the beginning when he said that I make man in my own image and he shall have dominion over this world. He will have rule, government. And so one of the things that I think we are needing to come to grips with is why is the family, the church, and the state having so many problems, so many confusions? Because of this worldview shift. Because the inward religion creating culture has changed in many hearts, creating a new tension. So let's introduce yet another concept before we turn to the scriptures. Ideas that I hope you'll keep in your mind as we begin to look at the founding chapters of the Bible. And that is what St. Augustine called the city of God. And he contrasted it with what he called the city of man. Now the reason that this is a helpful point at this stage is that Augustine is one of the very first of the Christian thinkers to try to put together the idea of a Christian worldview, a way of looking at all things from a vantage point of God's work in history. And he said all of history can be described as two cities, two civilizations, two cultures that are wrestling with each other because of two different supreme loves. There is a culture that is built upon the love of God, and it creates the city of God. There is another culture that's built upon the love of oneself or the love of man, and it creates a different city, a different culture, and he traces it right back to the story of Cain and Abel and then begins to work it through the Bible and what happens to the family of faith versus the other civilizations that unfold. And he says these two loves, these two inward commitments to what we most cherish explain two civilizations, two cultures, two worldviews, two ways of interpreting everything. And so to try to make all of this as simple as possible, have any of you been following some of the speculations people have had about an invading distant planet coming into our solar system? Okay, you, whether you agree with it or not, it's a good illustration. So don't set it aside if you think it's all foolishness. But imagine you have a beautiful solar system with a big sun in the middle, and you happen to have three planets that are in beautiful symmetry going around this, and they're in concentric, let's say, circles or ellipses so that they never crash. They're all related together. The sun, in this case, would be God himself. It would be God who is at the heart of it. And each of the planets, which is the planet of the family, the planet of the church, the planet of the states, they are in love. They're gravitationally drawn to the sun and they circulate around it and they find all of their meaning and relationship. And as they do that, they never crash into each other. 
They're always working in a way that balances and blesses the other. They are there, they are distinct, but they're utterly related. And what keeps the symmetry, the lack of confusion and chaos, but the communal expression of the whole is this common love. That was Augustine's view, if you will, of civilization. This one central love brings everything together. Now, he didn't know about the heliocentric universe, but he had the idea that love brings order. Now, what's happened in our day? This other love, this love of mankind, has created its own gravitational pull. And it has, if you will, planets that are moving in all sorts of uncareful movement so that the family is beginning to be tugged into a collision course with the state. And the state is beginning to try to push out everything and so it becomes the sun so that everything attracts it. And this chaotic solar system is coming into crash with the other solar system of harmony. And the gravitational forces are attraction. And collision is coming. This, if you will, is the confusion that is before us. If we are going to make sense of what we're facing, we need to go back to the very beginning of how God established the original solar system with himself as the center and with the institutions that he created that are finding their meaning in their proper concentric orbits around God. Sometimes we speak of the family, church, and state as spheres. And so this would be the idea, if you will, the sphere, the planet. And a man by the name of Abraham Kuyper, a wonderful Dutch theologian who was a prime minister for a period of time in the Netherlands in the late 1800s, a scholar, journalist, he established the Free University of Amsterdam. He ran for office, a wonderful reform thinker. And he said we must speak about sphere sovereignty, that each of these entities of family, church, and state have their own unique areas of value that the other must never take from them. And that is they must remain in their unique orbit around the kingdom of God. They have their place. Okay, now, with that background, lots of terms, lots of ideas. What have we said? Family, church, and state are critical. But there's confusion. Who do we blame? Well, we think we need to blame is a change in culture that is beginning to invade the traditional understanding of what these three areas ought to be. We're going to look at some of those forces in a moment. But before we do that, we need to take time and go back and say, what did God establish? What was God's vision for this world as we find it in the scriptures? And of course, the city of God in its story is found in the book of Genesis. If you want to follow along, I'll be appealing to several verses in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We'll do it quickly uh, because there's so much we need to cover tonight. But we begin in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And we see God's decree to create man. He says, let us make man. God's determination, it comes out of his plan. 
Man is given a divine-like nature. It says, I will make man in our image and after our likeness. And so we could think about this as God is creating someone that will reflect who he is, his image, kind of like if you put up a mirror in front of yourself. Here you are and you see an image of yourself. It's a likeness too, so that not only do you look in the mirror and you see yourself, but if someone looks in the mirror, it looks like you. Image and likeness, they are reciprocal. They reflect each other. So that God has created no need for idols of himself. He says, look at mankind. We are the ones that reflect who God is. We are his image. And then we find that not only has God decreed to create, he's given man divine-like nature, but he's given him authorization to rule. It says, and let them have dominion. Let them be in charge. And this is going to be over the sea, over the earth, over the air, including the animals, such as the fish and the birds and the livestock and the creeping things. In verse 27, we're told, so God created man. God's determination is brought into actualization, and he creates Mankind, notice, as man. But he describes man in verse 27 as male and female. There is a sense that we are man expressed with two genders. Humanity is male. Humanity is female. This is God's original design. And notice how the language says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You notice what's going on here. Man is defined as two genders, male and female. It says that he makes man in his own image. It means there is nothing else like this. It's not that there are other possible images. It is his own image. It is unique to him. He's imparting something that is only God's, and it's given to man. Meaning that this image that mankind bears is something that only God could give to him. It is his own image. Would you notice further that God will say that God created man in his own image, and then in the image of God, he created him. Him and his both refer to God and to, to the man. God is masculine in the scriptures. And yet this does not negate that man is both male and female. Now, if we were to try to look at this founding text from a new cultural vantage point, how would it be read? Um, there is no God. So God didn't make anything. There is no making. You don't have an image of God if you want to know who you are, go to the animals. Go to the rats or the rabbits or the monkeys or the gorillas because that's what you're an image of. There's no God. You're not made in his image. You're made in the image of the animals. And don't even think about ruling over the earth. Keep your hands off. The earth is its own entity and you are destroying the earth has its own rights. The animals have their own rights. You back off and leave it alone. And if you dare talk about God 
which we think is utterly stupid and you shouldn't, make sure you call him he, she, and it. And if you want to talk about male and female, make sure you add a cisgender and also a personal choice gender so that you don't impose any gender on anybody because it's fluid. It is not factual. In fact, we need to realize that this whole story is a myth and unacceptable. Okay, you see, this foundational explanation that describes how we got a culture that honors family, church, and state has been removed. How? By putting in place a new center. Someone has said, if there is no God, you have to create one. And what has the secular world created for God? Well, it's either the self or it's the government. Those are our options. That is the alternative. Now, we continue to look at this fabulous uh, foundation passage. I would like to go back and say, who is man then from a biblical vantage point? Perhaps some of you have studied the fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a, actually a marvelous piece of theological summation. It says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You know, I've just said a mouthful, but if you know that, you know more about God than most theologians who have not studied the Bible carefully. It's a beautiful statement. What it starts with, it says God is. God exists. What is his essence? He's a spirit. He's invisible. And then he has three incommunicable properties, properties that God alone can have. Either you have them in your God or you don't have them and you can never be God. What are those three properties to be infinite, to be eternal, and to be unchangeable? Infinite means there is no boundaries in space. Eternal means there's no boundaries in time. Unchangeable means there's no process and development, but absolute perfection. God is utterly perfect. And these three incommunicable attributes, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable, are in his, meaning they all now inform what we call his communicable attributes. Things that God possesses that he can impart to his creatures. You know the difference between a communicable disease and an incommunicable disease. I'm not sure who's coughing over there, but be careful. He might have a communicable disease. Okay? Now, if I happen to have an ulcer, I, can't, I might give you an ulcer, but I can't give you my ulcer. It's not communicable, right? Communicable attributes are the things that God possesses that he can give to his creatures. And there's a whole list of them. Being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Well, this is God. Well, then what's man? If man is the image of God, we can take that same description and we can say that we are a mirror image of it, although we are not God. We reflect him but we are not him. We are like him. We're an image of him, but we are not identical with him. There is a creator-creature distinction. And so we could say, man is a spirit and a body. While God is invisible, we are visible with invisible spirits. 
Man is a spirit in a body. He is finite. He is temporal. And he is changeable. And these impact our being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These qualities, then, are what give human beings their great dignity. Every human being has significance because we are made to be like God. While we are finite and we are limited, God has promised to overcome all those limitations by coming and uniting us with Christ. We are united to him even though we're limited. While we're temporal, by his grace, he gives us eternal life and souls that will be eternal with him. And while we are mutable, one day our nature will become unchangeable because we will be saved to sin no more. We'll be removed from this world and be made like God. But it means that we have being that is able to have wisdom. We're not just accidental lumps of DNA that has somehow morphed into this thing from its beginning in the swamp bog. No, we are the image bearers of God, and we have wisdom. We have the ability to have holiness. We have the ability to pursue what is just. We know what is good and wrong, and we can pursue truth. But once you take away God from us, and once we are no longer made in the image of God, what is man? Man is an accidental collocation of atoms, finite, temporal, mutable in his being. And he's never able to know what true wisdom is. His power at best is to establish his own interests at the expense of others. Holiness is an illusion, for there is no God. Justice is whatever you can pay to the most powerful force or most clever attorney. And goodness is always self-interest. You always do to others so you can get something back. And the truth is whatever your colleagues or your peers will let you get away with. See how the world changes? Once you begin to have a culture that worships something other than God, then everything, a family, church, and states, and the values that we have, be destroyed. Now we know that as we continue on in Genesis 1 verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. God now brings a benediction on his image bearers that are man with two genders, male and female, and they are those that are able to have this unique identity, likeness, image of God, but not an exhaustive identity, but a, a reflection, and they are to be fruitful. They are to multiply. They are to fill the earth. They are to subdue it. And they are to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what that is telling us is that God is giving to man what has been called by theologians the creation mandate. The command that is given to his image bearer at the beginning of human history to go out and realize that having children is a blessing. In fact, that there should be 
an expansion of the human race. It should multiply. In fact, as it grows, it is to look at the earth and see the earth as that which it should begin to be impacted by human presence. Human beings are to feel, and they are to subdue it. To subdue does not mean to destroy or harm. It means to bring it under useful control. It's kind of like the power of a lightning bolt. We can't quite control it, but we figured out how to control electrons on a smaller level. And we get lights. We get computer programs. That work that we're doing then is subduing. It's interesting, when I was traveling just a few months ago in India, I had a chance to get out into the jungle up near the Himalaya foothills. Quite an interesting experience. And my guide told me, he said, you know, you use the word jungle? That's really a Hindi word. He said, it is. I didn't know that. What does it mean in Hindi? He says it means uncultivated land. Land that is untended. The jungle. What is the opposite of the jungle? It's the garden. It is taking the wonders of the wild, uncontrolled order, and we begin to put it together to find value and significance. Subduing is basically harnessing. It's like what Nikola Tesla did so long ago when he took the power of Niagara Falls and harnessed it with AC machinery and created the modern world. He took this wild waterfall and these wonderfully crazy electrons and he turned it into controllable energy that has changed the world. Every one of our lives have probably been saved by electricity at some point. Now, there may be a few who have almost been killed by electricity. I understand that. Probably a little bit of home workmanship gone awry. But the point is, is that subduing is bringing order to that which is not ordered. This creation mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, bringing order to it, subduing it so that it is harnessed for good, is an expression of man's ruling over all things. Now that is how the family, the church, and the state found, if you will, their concentric orbits around God. Be fruitful and multiply. What is that? It's a family. The family is a beautiful thing. And filling the earth. What does that mean? It means beginning to create communities, cities, towns, regions, and countries. And as you do that, you begin to subdue it. That is, you begin to have the ability to bring together that which brings order so that you can bring good and wise rule. That's government. Now notice you're bringing family and rule to bear, and you're doing it where? Under God, who told you to do this, which means that you're doing it as part of his church, part of his community, part of his order. The beginning of our Christian culture, the beginning of our understanding of the family, church, and state comes right out of this creation mandate that says the family is precious and good. That scientific investigation and ordering of things for man's good is wonderful. And that governing and leading under God 
is a blessing. You do all of this ultimately to worship as we find in verse 31. And God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. That statement, it was very good, does not God say, I say it's good. The way it translates here is, this is what we say about it. We too with God look and say, this is all beautiful. This is all wonderful. This is goodness. Ah, but now this invading solar system of different values, swirling around the self or the state, what does it say? It doesn't say be fruitful. It says abort. It doesn't say multiply, but shrink the human race. It doesn't say fill the earth. It says let's keep all sorts of places left as untouched jungle, uncultivated, undeveloped, left alone because it has a right of its own glory not to be touched by man. Let the jungle reign. And yes, if we're going to have dominion, let it not be over the fish of the sea or the birds of the heavens or every living thing that moves on the earth, but let's make sure it's over people who don't agree with what we've just said. Let's have the power to create our definition of the family, our definition of legitimate worship by giving <clears throat> more dominion to those who are uniquely qualified to possess its power. And they say, and this is what will be very good. Why is family, church, and state in confusion? It's because there is a new center, and Augustine said it long ago, there's a new love. If we do not love God, we will not love our neighbor. Who are our closest neighbors? Our family. Why should we believe in patriotism and the value of country? Because our country are our broader neighbors, and we're to love our neighbors. We're to care for their well-being. And what do you do as Christians? We're supposed to love one another deeply, who, for Christ's sake, who loved us. We seek to love them as imperfect as we all are. We try to create community. But now, in its place, there's something different. The self becomes the center. And the family can be abandoned if it is not convenient for self-interest. The church is marginalized, and only if there's value for me do I show up. And the state, well, I guess you got to have a state, but it's as long as it lets me get what I want and gets me more of what I want, it's okay. Or the state, what does it say? Family, I'm really worried about you. You know why? Well, if you take the Marxist explanation, it's because that's how property is passed on from generation to generation. We want to destroy private property. We want a complete equality of everything. Everybody has to be exactly alike. Everybody has to have the same amount. We're going to socialize everything so everybody's just alike. And we've got to destroy the family to do it. And you're saying, Lilbeck, you're going off your rocker. I'm just quoting Karl Marx. That's what he said. We have to destroy the family. And so you begin to say, okay, if we're not radical communists, what if we're just kind of mild Marxists? Which means, well, then, if we don't want to totally destroy the family, we'd really want to limit and weaken the family wherever we can. 
And if we're really Marxists, God is the opiate of the people. Let's get rid of God. Let's get rid of the church. The church always stands against the state because it's trying to protect the family. It's trying to teach respect to some established order. What does Marx say? Well, listen to Marx. And I want you to know that a great number of our intellectual leaders in academia and in government, while they would never call themselves communists, they are consciously following a Marxist playbook. Whether they're honest enough to say it, they'll usually say they're liberals. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue that liberalism is largely dead in America. It's largely leftism now. But listen to this, way back in 1848, Karl Marx, political philosopher, and founder of the communist political ideology concluded, there is only one way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and the bloody birth throes of the new society can be shortened, simplified, and concentrated, and that way is revolutionary terror. In the Communist Manifesto, he said, the communists openly declare their ends can only be attained by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. What are the existing social conditions? Family, church, and state. They gotta be thrown over. We gotta get rid of them. Vladimir Lenin, the successor of the Russian Revolution said, the supersession of the bourgeois state by the proletariat state is impossible without violent revolution. Lenin argues that violent revolution is the only means by which the state, with its current form, can be overthrown. He asserted that there was an irreconcilable split in society that necessitated violence as a way of abolishing oppression. Lenin observed that the leaders in most societies possess control of a standing army and police, which are the chief instruments of force of the state power, and thus the only way to deprive the exploiting class of control is to confront it with violence. Okay, you say, well, man, that sounds pretty radical. No, no, wait, let's just step back for a moment. Let's take a look at this partisan moment. Has there been any sense where the respect for the police in America has declined in recent years? Do you know why that is? Because of this. Have we had any sense where there is a use for, if you will, various forms of vandalism and violence to make points. Have you heard about property destruction being celebrated in cities just because we don't like something and it's winked at? That is a form of doing these things. Now, the point that I want to get here is not to say that we are watching Marxist revolution before our eyes, but we are watching the principle of one new ideology, a new center of value, colliding with the existing social forces in America, and it's beginning to create tremendous tensions. This is why we have confusion, at least in part. Now let's go back to the scriptures. We have to watch our time here. How much time do I have left? Or is Lou? Five minutes? Okay. Mike, when do I have to stop? Just keep going. You can, you can walk out on me. You won't offend me. Okay. So as you continue to think about it, you go to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 in Genesis. Notice that the seventh day is a day in which God finished his work. He rested. 
And he blessed that day. And he set it aside. He called it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so what we see is the climax of what God had done with his creating, if you will, the, the family to be fruitful and multiply, having its ability to do business and make value by harnessing the energy of the world, and then developing governance, having dominion. He says what overarches all of it is the act of worship. Worship, the day of Sabbath, when all of these normal things stop and we just come together and we rest in God. Okay? What we begin to see then is in a culture that no longer believes in God is that the protection of a day of worship becomes something that must be removed. All of us that are here, by and large, with gray hair have lived through the death of the blue laws in America. There was a day when the government said, we must protect the day of worship. Maybe you saw that movie, Concussion. Remember that scene? Why are you trying to attack the NFL? Don't you know we are strong enough to get rid of the Lord's Day from the church? It now belongs to the NFL. Okay, popular culture. Taken over. God has been shoved out. That's living for self. Government no longer protects the church. It says it's not relevant. In God's model, the church celebrated what God had done. And so then we begin to see the confusion of values. Now, God in this passage of chapter 2 makes it clear that there are many other things that he's done. He's given us gold and rivers and trees with fruit. That work is a wonderful thing to do. It's a garden that we can labor on and have value. It's not good to be alone. Marriage is something that's wonderful. And when God establishes marriage, what does he call it? A man and a woman. He calls it heterosexual monogamy. He made one man for one woman, Adam and Eve, and he said, this is the way it ought to be. Theologians call that the creation ordinance. What God did at the beginning becomes the standard by which we should model ourselves. Okay, a new standard. Get rid of the Sabbath, and let's get rid of this idea of heterosexual monogamy. Why not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or two men and five women, or who cares? Why can't we do what we want? Because it's the self. The self is now in the center. Narcissism. Now, what's interesting, and now I'm, I'm going to uh, share some personal anecdotes. On the other side, we need to realize that our culture that has begun to wrestle with a redefinition of marriage, a redefinition of the family, a rejection of what God has done, is actually encountering an ideological strategy that has been developed globally to attack the Christian and the traditional values of the West. Now, now what am I just saying? Well, put it this way. I was just in Korea, and I was meeting with a professor, a man by the name of Professor Lee at a university in southern Korea. And he said, I was recently converted. I don't have time to tell you his conversion story. But he said, I was a Buddhist monk that had studied deeply in Marxist ideology. And I hated Christianity because Buddhists don't like Christian leadership in Korea. And I realized I could use Marxism 
to advance my assault against the church. So I blended the two. I was a Buddhist Marxist. You can be an atheist and be a Buddhist, by the way. I don't know if you know that, but it's very possible. And I used my intellectual skills that included being trained at Oxford University to figure out how to create so much tension for the large churches in Seoul, Korea, that they were tied up in court nonstop, one court case after another. And one of the strategies we worked at was to bring people into the church that would create lawsuits within the church that would force the church to have to waste its resources on fighting to resolve the problems. We were infiltrating the churches. And we kept pressing on the government the requirement of transgender and same sex. This is Korea now. This is not the United States. We were doing it intentionally. In fact, I wrote the law that was brought to government so that the church would be forced to be in tension with the government because we want to destroy the church. How about that? I haven't just heard that in Korea. There's another gentleman who's now working in the United States. He's working with Muslims. I won't mention his name. But he said, I was raised in an urban center. I got a surprising scholarship to go to one of the great universities in New York City. I got to work all the way on my PhD. And I studied under the ideological platform and I went to law school. And I know exactly what the playbook is. We are going to seek to destroy the traditional church and the traditional values that have been part of America by using same-sex marriage, by using transgender arguments, by assaulting religious liberty wherever we can, by bringing legal assaults into the church so that they are Oh, wait, that's the United States. That's Korea. Two different people, two different places. And you know what we're saying here in the church? Oh, Dr. Leoback, you shouldn't talk about these things. You should be much more careful. You're bringing politics into the George Whitfield Society. Look, I haven't even talked about politics. I'm talking about worldview and culture. I'm just talking about what people are doing. This is a reality, and it is not something that we can run from. We must recognize that it is happening around us. And so as we continue on with our thoughts, and I do want to bring it to an end so we can have some time for questions, I think some classic examples that come to mind. I mentioned that this morning in our Bible study that I think the fire chief of Atlanta by the name of Kelvin Cochran, maybe you know his story, right? A wonderful minority leader, Christian man, on his own time for his church, wrote a, a book on godliness, and he included about five pages on what a godly family looks like. The city council got a hold of that book, and they said, Atlanta cannot have a fire chief who can do his job that believes that. That is hatred against people who have alternate views of what the family ought to be. And he was fired, dismissed. And in that context, I remember hearing another Christian scholar uh, speaking, and he said, you know, I've been talking to many businessmen through the last 30 years, and here's what they tell me. He said, 30 years ago, if you came to your uh, CEO of your company and said, I, I need to tell you, the person you're thinking about hiring for that position, I think he may be a same-sex attraction person. We really need to be careful. He would say to you, thank you because this is a very critical issue for integrity. Today, he said, if you do that, you will lose your job because you're filled with hate speech. 
what we have watched then is a shift in culture. These two solar systems, one that has either self or government at the center and everything else must travel around it, is in collision with this classic solar system of values we're reading in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's created, if you will, a shift. Charles Taylor, the philosopher of Canada, put it this way. He's borrowing language. If you study theology, you can hear from Augustine. He said there was a time when it was impossible not to believe. He said when you go into the medieval era, if you did not believe what the Catholic Church said, you were burned at the stake by the government. You could not not believe what was said or you would die. And then the Reformation came on the scene in the process of the Enlightenment, and there came a new model. It was a time when it was possible to believe and a time when it was impossible not to believe at the same time. That's, that's really what America is. It's a place where we have the First Amendment, that we don't force people to believe in a religion, but we give people great freedom to be who they are. But Taylor says we have crossed into a third category. We're just beginning an era called, we're now in a time when it is impossible to believe and be in public leadership. That's the story of Kelvin Cochran. He apparently has won his case by a, a federal court just yesterday. So maybe he'll be restored. That would be good news. But what we're hearing now is that we're seeing these values beginning to exclude anything of the past. It is intentional, it is scholarly, it is the movement that's doing, and it's not limited just to the United States or Korea. My friends who are in China, you've heard about the great Chinese church, the wonderful growth of it. There is now a new decree that has been passed in China, even with its official religions, which includes Christianity, it is now declared that you may no longer, as of March 1st of this year, bring a child into Christian education. It is illegal. All Christian education is closed in China. You must be at least 18 years of age before you can personally decide to get Christian education. How about that? That's right now in our own day. What was once an opening government is now crashing down and the pressure is falling. But where have we been in our talk? I've covered a lot of ground. Let me summarize quickly and conclude. We started out by saying that we need to realize family, church, and state are part of our culture. That culture is shaped by a worldview. That worldview of Christianity flows from God and his revelation. It includes creation, fall, redemption. That worldview has shaped us in the West, what we've read in Genesis 1 and 2. But we are now facing a collision of another worldview that creates another culture that does not value the family, that does not value the church, and it is determining to push God out of the center by making the government the new God or if we can't get there, at least making the self so antagonistic to everything else that it will make a harm for the family, it will make a harm for the church, and in the process, it will make the state have a chance to take over more power while no one's watching. 
that is where we are today. What are we going to do? Well, I don't know if you've seen the great movie on Winston Churchill called The Darkest Hour. Have you seen that? It's worth seeing. Go see it if you haven't seen it. And then watch Dunkirk afterwards. They kind of go hand in glove. There's a fabulous scene when Churchill realizes that 300,000 soldiers are stranded on the beach at Dunkirk. The Nazi army has driven them to the beach. There's no way to stop their destruction. And all the people back home in leadership have decided that all we can do is surrender. We're going to surrender 300,000 men, which means that England is going to become now a puppet state to the Nazis. The king is planning to actually leave and go to Canada, leave his country. There was one man who stood up and said, we will not do this. His name was Winston Churchill. He had had a chance to see what a dictator does when he decides to turn against the rights of the individual, the rights of the family, the rights of the church by elevating the state over everything. That's what Hitler did. Same thing. It was different ideology, but the same plan. And he said, we're not going to do it. They said, how are you going to do this? There's no way we can stop it. And I can't tell you the story. You need to watch the movie to figure out how he did it. And I didn't buy any stock in the movie, so there's no self-interest here. He basically mobilized the little people to take their ships and rescue the army. Isn't that amazing? The people rescued the warriors when the warriors had failed. That is exactly, and it has always been exactly, God's method. It's when we decide we will once again say, thus saith the Lord. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Did we sing those words tonight? That's what the Reformation did 500 years ago and changed the world and gave us this social order that we're now squandering because, well, we just better not talk about these things, even while we're being undermined every place we turn. So if, as I conclude, I want to read a, a, an interesting passage that I came across from the late Dr. James Kennedy. You know you're getting old when everybody you quote's passed away, I tell you. So, I, by the way, I, I did tell Mike, I said, I'm looking at all the pictures on, on, the, on the thing. Looks like I'm next here on the others. I've gone on to glory. But I'm right with the Lord, so I'm not afraid. So that's, that's the good news. Yeah, okay. But uh, I want to conclude this with, with this because I think it, it says a very poignant point as we wrap up and open up for some discussion. Dr. Kennedy, in a sermon entitled Semper Fi, sounds very marine-like, doesn't it? I remember a story about a small church out in the boonies of the Soviet Union in their heyday. In the midst of a service attended by about 100 people, suddenly there was a crash as four soldiers kicked in the front door and stomped down to the front of the church with machine guns turned on the congregation. They said, you filthy Christians, 
You are the offscouring of the earth. You are a plague on the glorious atheistic society of the Soviet Union, and you are going to die today. You are not fit to live. You are a blotch on our glorious motherland. However, there may be some among you who are not here because you believe this foolish nonsense, and we will give you one minute to get out of this building. Silence. Then suddenly the scuffle of feet in about half the congregation raced for the door, after which one soldier closed it. The others with their machine guns trained on the congregation set them down and said, Brethren, we've come to worship Christ with you, but first we had to get rid of the hypocrites. That's what's happening right now. The times are coming when the people who really are followers of Christ are going to show themselves. It's going to be costly. That is exactly what Winston Churchill told England. He said, you know what? It's not going to be easy. But I have no fear. Because that culture said we will survive. But we have something far greater than the United Kingdom. And it's not the United States. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our call at this moment in time is to go back to Genesis 1 to 3 and speak the truth in love. Have the courage to say, yes, you may choose to argue that marriage is between anybody who wants, but you need to remember that God says that's not the right way. I love you, you have you, whatever values, but God says this. I know you want to say genders are something you choose whatever you want, but the scriptures tell us, and in fact, by the way, your DNA tells you that you are male or female, and it's good. That's what God wanted. And by the way, I know you want to do whatever you want and give all of your control to a government that will give you everything you want. But remember, a government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have, and it will when it's necessary and convenient for its interest. The miracle of freedom of a society that is able to have this wonderful harmony of family, church, and state called the city of God, is possible because of the gravitational force of a common love for God. Let's not let our solar system be destroyed. Instead, let us love God ever more and watch the amazing things that God will do. As the collisions, the struggles, the heartache will come. But Nikita Khrushchev once said, we will bury you. The truth is, we will bury this culture. Christianity will still be here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word abides forever. So tonight, family, church, and state, they're in confusion, but they don't have to be. They come back in order, and we choose to love God, and we choose to love each other, and humbly submit to God's word. So let's pray, and then uh, we're going to open it up for some questions in a minute. Father, thank you for the joy of reflecting on this passage of Scripture, the challenges that we're facing. We pray, Lord, for our families. Lord, give us commitment and conviction to hang in there when things are hard. Lord, bless our churches that we would realize that they are the great outposts of the kingdom of God established by your grace and that you love the church, Lord Jesus, and gave yourself for her. We pray, Lord, that we would, like you, love your church and serve. And Father, we pray for our government. We pray, Lord, it would not be 
a nation that is without God, but we might remain by your mercy, one nation under God. Lord, this miracle of a republic of liberty, of constitutional governance, is a byproduct of these great truths we studied tonight. Unworthy as we are, Lord, would you establish them again? We pray this through Christ our Lord.